we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to jump in. First, uh, let me help, help me thank Matt for uh, jumping in. <laughs> Is there anything you can't do? Everyone, everyone loves the new guy. He can do, he can sing, he can, he can dance, he's smart, he can read. Thank you, Matt. I'm not, I'm not jealous or envious. So. Um, I dress better. Um, so if you have uh, been a part of uh, the Grove for any uh, last few weeks, we are going through a book called We Make the Road by Walking. This is by Brian McLaren. It follows a chapter each week. And so several of you have um, participated by grabbing the book, by ordering it, downloading it. Um, it's a easy read and it's, it's great to be a part of that, to continue to read together. Each chapter comes with, um, two or three scripture references that, um, will ties in the, the topic of the week. Um, and so I encourage you, if you haven't to get it, we have plenty of time. We're, <clears throat> we're in chapter 36 today, but, uh, we've only done a, a handful of chapters. We started, um, at Easter and so it's halfway through the book. And so we're going to circle back around. So there's 52 chapters. Um, but we have the majority of them left. So if you have a chance, grab the book, download it, um, be a part of that. We are in a section of the book called The Uprising. And so it started for us resurrection morning as we were asked to engage the story, to put our, our feet in the disciples' sandals, to, to walk where they're walking. Um, and we saw that this began with this uprising of hope, an uprising armed with with uh, love and not weapons. We saw an uprising of life and peace, not angry threats of hostility and death. Um, it moved from there into this fellowship, this uprising of being together, where anyone who wants to be a part of this is welcome. The disciples said, those of us with doubts, those of us with scars, um, that fellowship was an idea of belonging um, that it wasn't based on status or your achievements or gender, but based upon a deep belief that everyone mattered, that everyone was welcome, that everyone was loved, no conditions, no exceptions. And that's the same for us as we invite many to join us on the journey. Last week, Matt talked about the, the uprising of discipleship. That we looked at the story of when Jesus, prior to the cross and resurrection, he calls the first disciples um, these fishermen. And then post-resurrection, and Jesus uh, calls the same group of guys who are, again, once again on the lake, visibly distraught, find themselves back on a boat, returning to what was comfortable for them, wondering as a group what just happened, wondering what was going to happen to them next. Jesus had just died. They saw him come back to life. Uh, and then he was gone again. And on top of that, they're out there fishing and they're not catching anything. And, and so nothing seems to be going good for these guys. And then a voice from the shore yells out to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat. And they catch is so large that they're unable to bring the net into the boat. And they sit around a small campfire and they eat some of the fish they caught. And it's then in the most common of places around the meal, around the table, they realize that it was Jesus who was with them there. And Jesus instructs them to go and make disciples for this uprising of discipleship to be fishers of men, not just fish. He said to Peter, if you love me, then go love my sheep also. And from there, the church began. 
How many of you have been a part of a church for more than three years? Raise your hand. Five years. Keep your hand up. Ten years? Thirty years? More than 30 years. Have you ever asked why? Have you ever asked those questions yourself? Why? Why do you go to church? Why on Sundays? Why do you come to a building? You see, I've had a couple questions about church recently, and it seems that there's an ever-growing sense that the Sunday morning experience is just not that important anymore. And it's not just the millennial generation, although it is very popular with millennials, but across every generation, there's more and more people that are unsettled with the institution of church, the practice of going to church, or why the church even exists. Perhaps the story has gotten old, or maybe it's grown faint. Maybe it's drowned out by the competing stories in our life. Or the story doesn't answer the questions that we're asking. Or the answers just aren't adding up. But people have been hurt by people, and there are people in church, and so we have to avoid people now. And I feel like those are legitimate questions and issues with the church. And I often ask myself, why are we doing this? Like, whose idea was this in the first place? And this is what the disciples thought about the church. So we're in chapter 36. I'm going to read a little bit from here. It says this, We gathered frequently as little communities we called the ecclesia. We borrowed this term from the Roman Empire, just as we borrowed the cross and reversed its meaning. For the Romans, an ecclesia is an exclusive gathering that brings local citizens together to discuss the affairs of the empire. Our ecclesia brings common people together around the affairs of the kingdom of God. Whenever and wherever the Roman ecclesia gather, they honor and worship the emperor and the pantheon of gods that support him. Whenever and wherever we gather, we honor and worship the living God revealed to us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our ecclesia gather for worship wherever we can, in homes, public buildings, or outdoor settings, and we gather whenever we can, but mostly at night, since that's when nearly everyone, even the slaves among us, can assemble. We often gather on Sunday, the day Jesus rose and this uprising began. But none of us would argue that which day is best, since every day is a good day to worship God. And then Brian McLaren, in this book, he goes on to kind of uh, break the, the function of the worship gathering into four pieces. And it's not an exhaustive list, but four crucial parts. Teaching is one of them. He says, whether in person or by letter, through the teachings of the apostles, we learn the words of Jesus, the stories about Jesus, the parables that he told, the character he embodied, and so we can walk the road he walked. And then he says, in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine, he says, usually this part of the meal that we call our love feast of the Lord's table, it is so unlike anything else we have ever experienced. Everywhere in our society, we experience constant divisions between rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, city-born and country-born, and so on. But at the Lord's table, just as it was with Jesus, a shared table with sinners and outcasts, we are all one, all loved, and all welcomed as equals. He says the fellowship is another part, the sharing of experiences, whether it's the fears and, and the tears the failures, the, the joys, the, the gifts, or the resources together. And lastly, he says prayer. 
We bring the needs and sorrows of others to God. We pray for our enemies. We pray for boldness and wisdom so that we can spread the good news of God's love to everyone at everywhere. And then he says this, when we gather, the Holy Spirit gives each of us different gifts to be used for the common good. The same Spirit who gives the gifts is teaching us to be guided by love in all that we say and do, for love matters most for us. It is even greater than faith and hope. We don't want to give anyone the impression that everything is perfect with us. We have lots of problems and a lot to learn, but somehow our problems seem small in comparison to the joy that we feel. This is why even when we are tired from long days of work, even when we are threatened with persecution, even when life is full of hardships and we feel discouraged or afraid, still we gather to rise up in worship. My church growing up, we did these four things. We practiced these four pieces. There was an hour-long sermon every Sunday. We, we took communion. We took an offering and we shared our resources. Um, and then there was a lot of prayer. I grew up in a very charismatic faith tradition. And so we had a lot of, of songs and, and dancing and, and weird things going on as well. Amen. My therapist says it's good for me to talk about those things. But Matt and I, uh, we sat with about 15 college students, uh, college-age students last week um, from Canada. And we tried our best to respond to some of their questions of faith and doubt and church. They asked things like, what should I look for in a church? Or if I were to lead a church, what kind of church do I want to lead? What has been something that you guys have struggled with in your faith or had to deal with as being church leaders or, or just followers of Jesus? And I thought about it and... And for me, uh, one of the things, and it was probably the main thing for me, was this issue that I had growing up in my church tradition was the lack of value that was placed on the here and now. Almost like this life didn't matter. It was only about where you ended up. Everything was about getting to heaven, getting saved, and now you're in. Like it never made sense to me why all the focus was on where do I go when I die? And very little focus on why am I here in the first place. Matt shared about this last week. He shared the story of the missionary that didn't believe in, in, in hell. And so when questioned about why an urgency, why tell people about Jesus? Why, why do you do so much work doing this? He replied simply that he couldn't imagine someone going another moment without knowing that God loved them. For him, this life right here mattered. This time that we get here is so important. The 78.7 years, you know, it wasn't just about the destination, but the journey itself. Which is leading us into the next piece of today's conversation. And so I want to start off by saying this. I am not an expert in this next field. Um, I did stay at a um, Holiday Inn Express last night, and so... Old commercial, <clears throat> but it but it applies to the information that I'm about to give, and actually applies to everything I say on Sunday morning. So, and this is from N.T. Wright, who is a uh, an amazing theologian in our faith, um, written many books, and one of the leading guys uh, when it comes to uh, the looking at the New Testament and Old Testament and what Scripture uh, means to us and, and what it meant 
then. But this is what he says. And so he says, I'm going to claim this as my own. He says, the point of discourse, this here conversation, is to learn from one another. He says, I used to tell my students that at least 20% of what I am telling them was wrong. But I didn't know which 20% it was. That I make many mistakes in life and in relationships and in work. And I don't expect to be free of them in my thinking. So it's safe to say here this morning that I'm going to be wrong on about 20% of the information I'm about to give you. And I just don't know what 20%. And so you can't tune me out because you won't know which 80% was correct, right? And that might even be a high estimate. But here we go. Today is April 22nd, nationally celebrated as Earth Day. And so my hope in the next few moments is to draw some connections with our purpose to love others to that of how we care for the creation around us. You see, in the Protestant Reformation, it it had some good things and bad things. And one of the good things it is, it is it, it awakened us to this need for a personal relationship with Jesus. But it also caused us to kind of fall asleep on the relationship that we had with the rest of creation. How many of you have had the check engine light come on in your car? How many of you would admit that it's on right now? And you're ignoring it. Yeah, yeah, right? What's going to happen if you keep ignoring that check engine light, right? It's going to cost more and more, right? Like if you ignore it forever, that car is going to die, right? It's going to blow up. I remember I was driving home from my first uh, year at college, and we were coming home for the summer. We were just about an hour from Toledo, and my buddy's truck just stopped. And we checked the oil when we got out, and it was dry, There was a little white chalky stuff in there. The engine had seized up. If you've known that, if you've experienced that. So I asked him, well, when's the last time you checked the oil? And he said, I checked the oil? I'm supposed to check the oil? Yes. And so he neglected something that was very important for that car. And it now is dead. Um, The easiest way to destroy something is to ignore it, right? To neglect it. Whether it's your car engine light, whether it's the weeds in your garden, your job, a hole in your roof or your bank account. If you neglect it, you will ruin it, ruin it. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 24. It won't be on the screen behind me. So if you want to grab a Bible, you can. Otherwise, just trust what I read. Proverbs 24, we're going to start in verse 30. It says this, One day I walked by the field of an old lazy bones and then passed the vineyard of a lute. There were overgrown with weeds, thick with thistles, all the fences broken down. I took a long look and pondered what I saw. The fields preached me a sermon and I listened. A nap here, a nap there, a day off here, a day off there. Sit back, take it easy. Do you know what comes next? Just this. You can look forward to a dirt poor life with poverty as your permanent house guest. You and I are a part of God's creation. It doesn't matter if you follow the storyline from one of the three different creation stories in our sacred text, or if you believe that man evolved from ape, or however God chose to do it. We have been created from nothing, and we are in relationship with all of creation. And if we continue to neglect our relationship with the planet, the natural world around us, we will ruin it. The first command given to man from God was take care of the garden. 
We have a responsibility to maintain the natural world around us. The earth is primary for human survival. And to not see it as spiritual or holistic is to see it wrong. The earth and all of creation is sacred. And scripture repeatedly tells us that God loves all of his creation. And that it is an act of loving God when we love creation also. And it is an act of loving others when we love creation. How many of you know someone younger than you? This is like classic. We got a lot of questions. How many? Okay, a lot of people know that. How many people know someone from a younger generation than you? Right? Do you love them? We owe it to them to maintain this relationship with the planet. You and I have a common responsibility in the care of creation. All of life is closely connected. And this should be a primary issue for the church. It's worth talking about. It's worth awakening to. That the church and the followers of Jesus should be leading the charge on earth care. But instead, we're so far behind. In fact, most of evangelicalism is indifferent to caring for this planet. And it's found in three ways. And this is kind of where we're at. The attitude behind it. Becoming aware of our relationship and responsibility towards it. The reality for us is realizing that we've neglected and the impact that we have on our relationship there. And then movement, taking steps to fix it. Um, This book, Project Earth, um, Matt gave it to me uh, this week and I read through it. I want to read some of these things to you. Um, But here, beginning with indifference, it says there are three possible responses that we might take to the ecological crisis. Indifference damaging exploitation or support for the environment. And each needs serious consideration for each has been proposed either explicitly or implicitly. He says in indifference, the option of indifference seems to be the evangelical response of choice. He says, I say that not with sarcasm, but with sorrow. The simple fact is that the evangelical response to our crumbling environment has been a stunning, stunning silence. Christian magazines seldom even mention it, let alone provide a biblical perspective of the crisis facing our world. It says, woe to the evangelical pastor who devotes a sermon on the Christian's responsibility to nature. Such a man or woman would surely be labeled a victim of creeping liberalism. It says, the evangelicals are unconcerned about the fate of the earth as least as far as the evidence of church life and Christian literature indicate. This is an amazing on two counts. It says, first, Christians appear to be ecstatic about nature, right? We have proliferated summer camps and our hymns are filled with praise to God for the rocks and trees and skies and seas. And we're always searching for the more refreshing spots for weekend retreats. He says, it's also difficult to understand how Christians can miss the ecological crisis that is screaming at us. He says, we are left with something that is less a tragic reality than a shocking one. And to quote David Douglas, as stewards of creation, we have often dozed in the pews. So despite our love of nature, it is for us a secular topic, unspiritual, and thus to be regulated to others who are into that sort of thing. He says, if this is truly our response to the disaster awaiting our planet, it is an error of immense proportions. Not only have we forgotten that this world was made by God, Not only have we ignored that the only mandate he ever gave us concerning it was to tend the garden, but we have missed the entire theological import 
of creation as something formed to give God glory. Perhaps in our spiritual tradition, with its emphasis on higher values and its wariness of the physical that has led us down the wrong path, we have trained ourselves to deny the appetites of the flesh and to avoid the entrapments of this life, like wealth and security and pleasure. All of these have strong ties with matter, and thus we have unconsciously labeled the physical as evil and something to be denied. Yet no position can be more unbiblical. It was God who created matter. The physical is foundational, not just to this life, but to our heavenly existence. We, like Christ, will be raised with physical bodies. As well, the new heavens and the new earth of revelation appear to have all the properties of matter. He says, indifference will not do. As comfortable and even as pious as it may seem, we live with physical bodies in a physical world, and we simply cannot deny that reality. No matter how much we seek a spiritual existence, the physical is always there. The tangible creation cannot be ignored. He goes on to talk about damage. He says, the common sense tells us that damaging exploitation of the world is simply not an option. He says, the environment reflects the glory and the nurture of God to the extent that I damage it. These witnesses are diminished. Second, the earth is the Lord's given to us in trust. His one and only mandate for us to tend the garden. And we have in no sense been given permission to participate in God's uncreating judgment. And third, he says, creation must still nurture us and our children. It is insane to shoot the horse you are riding. When one turns to Jesus and starts to view the world as a gift from Jesus, the sins of human beings against the world stand out bolder in relief. They are Depredations, they take on a liniment of ecocentric denial of God, where God in his heavens, we would not so pollute the skies. The ruin of nature and the denial of God go hand in hand because both overexalt human beings. And the last thing he talks is movement. And he gives an example of inertia. You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan, where the man is beaten and left to die on this roadside and we can see it post parable we know how it ends but the first two priests and the levite walk by they're busy with their day they can't do another thing um and they just walk past this man as he as he begins to fade um but then there's the good samaritan who shows up in this movement this desire this inertia overwhelms him to the point where he has to get down off his his ride and help the man to safety to repair the wounds to put him on his own horse and to take him somewhere to where he could be taken care of. He says clearly that Christian in the community has forgotten its God-given task to tend the garden. He says commitment to preserving God's creation has been nearly non-existent and often viewed as heretical or irrelevant by many sectors of the church. And this has been the true particularly for the evangelical community. He says, we're doing very little about the environment because we have not yet awakened to the fact that there is a crisis before us and that crisis matters to the believers. It is as, it's, it's as if we have seen the man fall on the roadside and are still waiting for him to get up on his own. That we have not yet grasped that he is not going to get up, that he is in trouble and may die unless we take action. I read a few other articles this, this week, and I listened to a couple of podcasts, and 
Most of them had the same things to say. Uh, and so I want to share with you just briefly as we close this, some uh, ways that they said that we can make better choices. Some ways that you and I can begin to be better people who love God and love our neighbor, which means we love our planet more than we did yesterday. So some examples. One was to begin reducing our waste, to be more mindful of the things that we throw away. Uh, something that we do at our house and we do here at the church is we, we have recycled bins and we have a, a burn barrel here. And I've asked our staff and those that use the church, hey, we want to recycle. We want to be able to throw things uh, in a different bin. Um, and we want to be able to burn things that we can burn. And so we can be less, uh, um, less wasteful and, and create less, less waste. And so we're doing all right. You know, it's still we have in the kitchen, I think, four recycled bins and one trash can. And it seems easier to throw it in the one than the four. But we're working that way. Um, but uh, something I'm reminded about, Jody has this quote written on one of our wall chalkboards on the house. And it says this, the quote it says, we can do hard things. And then she always adds, it's a very popular quote, uh, quote but she always adds like something to the quote. Like, and usually it's something that the kids are complaining about that week, right? It says, we can do hard things. And then she says, cleaning our room is not one of them, right? Or we can, we can do hard things, but, but taking a bath is not one of them. Or eating at the table is not one of them. Or hanging up your wet towel, flushing the toilet paper is not a hard... Using toilet paper is not a hard thing, is often we have to say to our kids. These are not hard things, even though our kids seem to be struggling with them. So listen, we can do hard things, but recycling is not one of them. It's literally just putting the plastic bottle in the other container. That's all it is. It's shifting an arm, right? Like I, I went to the trash station a little while ago and the guy that was running the trash compactors in the recycle bin, you know, I mean, they're like right next to each other. You can drive up to. Um, he gets there and he's sorting and someone had taken the recycles and put it in a clear plastic bag and dropped the bag in there. Well, you can't recycle bags at this point, at least at our recycling center. So what the guy just did, because he was very mindful of earth and pollution, is he just ripped the bag open and dumped it out, right? No, he carried it over and threw it away because it was too much work for him to open the garbage bag to dump it in there. So please, if you're recycled here, don't put it in your bag because they just throw it away. Drop it loose into that recycling bin. But seriously, ask yourself those questions. Can it be recycled? Can it be repurposed? Uh, can it be composted or, or put in a burn pile? You and I are responsible for our own waste. If you have an option, this podcast, what's going on? If you had an option at the store, choose the one with less packaging, right? Like use recyclable grocery bags. You don't need to put your produce in the little plastic bags. It's not a, it's not a rule. Use reusable water bottles. How many of you use reusable water bottles? Something cool here um, this week, uh, over the next 24 hours, the Grove Church in Bryson City Outdoors, we teamed up to, together to offer a deal. So if you go to Bryson City Outdoors and, uh, before Monday night and you mentioned that you were here today and that you were part of Earth Day at the Grove, you get 25% off any reusable water bottle that was in the store. So that is for you guys. That is a gift from them. But it's us partnering together to try to make this a, a less wasteful place. The second thing is, is how you eat. Let me get the first part of this out of the way, because it's 
eat less meat, all right? Wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> there's, there's a lot there, and then we don't have time for it, good. But it's important, listen, but here's the deal. It's important to know, know the impact of what the meat industry has and continues to have on the planet. Everything from deforestation to water waste to methane uh, to the moral and ethical treatment of animals. Um, I'm not suggesting you, you go vegan or vegetarian, all right? I'm not saying that. But we can make better choices, right? There are ethical ways to remain a carnivore. There are ways to eat meat and not kill the planet. Another thing is, though, flip this, shop local farmer's markets and shop seasonally. Some of the fruit and veggies you vegans are eating are not in season yet. So ask yourself, how did that tomato get here? And what chemicals were used to ripen it? How were the laborers treated that picked that vegetable you're eating? Being disconnected from how things are produced, from your hamburger to your Brussels sprout, doesn't mean you're not responsible for the negative impact on the planet or creation. The third thing was is to reduce our energy consumption. It says the U.S. is 5% of the world's population, but use 25% of the Earth's resources. Turn off the lights for the love of God, right? Uh, we have in our bathroom down by the kids' end of the hall, that's a direct opening to our bedroom, we, we installed LED lights into their rooms. And now it's like blinding light. It's like that scene from Indiana Jones when they open the ark, you know? It's like so bright, you know? Like my daughter needs to see everything. Um, but she doesn't turn the light off in the middle of the night. And so it's just this shining, illuminating thing down the hallway, and it's reflecting off the tile, and it's just turn off the lights the heat doesn't need to be set on 75 all day long. Uh, your AC can rest. Open a window, right? Unplug your, your phone charger. You've heard that. Well, that's kind of been debunked. I read some of that. That really doesn't use a lot, but you can unplug your computer. But the amount of energy wasted on laundry and heating and air is, is ridiculous. Open a window and get a clothesline this spring, right? Car pull to work uh, or to the game or to church, right? Ride a bike, walk around town. The fourth was get outside more. This is something easy for all of us. So spend time appreciating creation. Go for a hike. Start today, right? People are going to get together afterwards, have lunch and go for a walk. If you can't today, find time in your schedule to get outside. You will begin to treat it better when you begin to enjoy it, to appreciate it, to take ownership of it, and to fall in love with it as you become aware that you are a part of creation too. Let me invite the band back on stage with me. Okay, we say here often, high invitation, high challenge. Meaning we invite anyone and everyone to join us, but the challenge is going to be high as well. We all get to be a part of it, but it's going to require some work. The point of this is not to do it out of guilt or shame. This is not an opportunity for anyone to stand outside of Ingles and catch people using plastic bags, right? This is, however, an opportunity to look at what your relationship with the planet looks like. To see how that relationship has been neglected. To take ownership of that neglect. And to make the changes to nurture that relationship. This is not a command to do more stuff. I know that you can't fit another thing into your schedule. 
But what I want you to see is that the desire to take care of the earth should flow out of you naturally. This is not driven by guilt, but driven by our identity as created in the image of God. And God loves his creation. And so we ought to as well. Genesis 2 starts with this. Adam, you have one job. I give you one job. Take care of the garden, Adam. That was it. Second Chronicles, God says, When my people repent and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. And we can't be paralyzed by the, I just, I can't do it all. But you can do better. The care for enjoyment of the earth is what makes us human. It's how we mirror the image of God. The core of the Christian faith is to call us back to being fully created as humanity. And if that's true, then it cannot be separated from the natural world. Evangelism, divorce from care of the earth is hypocrisy. But here's the encouraging part. That you and I are involved in creation care, whether we know it or not. Everything you do is participating in creation. Whether it's composting your food scraps, playing golf, or making a pot of coffee or raising your kids. Being eco-friendly is just the organic cherry on top. I invite you to stand. Join me in prayer. Lord of creation, Lord of water, earth and sky, the heavens are your tabernacle. The universe declares your majesty and you are holy, Lord of heaven and earth. And may we celebrate together in your creation. In your name we pray, amen. Help, Jody. There we are. Dodge that bullet. I'm doing my part by not buying razors. Oh, you guys just sit, yeah. This could be a while. That's how I'm helping the earth by not, yeah. Anyway, uh, Jeff asked me to do this. And, uh, yeah, as I started getting to think about it, I, I feel like the earth is a lot like uh, us in our humanity. It's made in the image of God. God created this thing. But now this thing, because of decisions we've made, is not what it, it, it should be. And, it, and it's kind of in this state of, of brokenness. And if you think about it, it's these things that like are overwhelming. If you read uh, headlines and, and things that indicator species of bees and things like that going away and, and, and things that are just part of our ecosystem disappearing, the extinction a month ago of a, a black rhino, the last one, because we're demolishing these things for poaching, for ivory, uh, cities running out of water and fires and the climate and the CO2. And there's so much stuff that, you know, in the things that Jeff talked about, there's so many things that, that can, can overwhelm all this stuff is inextricably connected to each other. It's part of the community that we belong to and we're connected, uh, both on the micro scale and the macro scale, both in our community here, uh, in Swain County and the world. And just like we're connected as people on, on this local scale and in this worldwide scale. You think about that. Wow, Tim, that's, 
super depressing. Thanks. And what does it have to do with the giving moment? Well, I didn't really know where I was going with this when I first started thinking about it. As it was just kind of overwhelming. So I started to, re- I go, I'm just going to read the Bible from cover to cover. This is last night. And, and luckily I ran into a gym right at the beginning, Genesis 1.10. And yeah, thank goodness we were talking about creation, right? If we talk about the end times, I'd get the Cliff's Notes version. But God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called the seas and God saw that it was good. And in my head, it was, it was the naming. We've talked about that before. Like when we get baptized, God names us and he names us the beloved and he named the earth and he named us and we acknowledge this as his beloved and he acknowledged that the earth was good. Just as he acknowledged when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, he said, this is my son whom I well pleased. So we're connected in this and God is behind it. And then this morning I got up and I put on Pandora, uh, get the worship vibe going in my house. And he makes everything beautiful, or he makes beautiful things, which is a song that we've heard up here before. And one of the words is hope is springing up from this old ground and out of chaos, life is being found in you. So we have a relationship with this earth It's a relationship, too, that's important because our children have this relationship. And generations that follow us have this and will have this relationship. And it can be overwhelming. But I want my kids to see the beauty, the things that I have seen, the places I've gone. I want them to have those those same opportunities. And it doesn't always have to be these huge, grand gestures I mean, we live in this amazing place where we see the ridge line of the Smokies right there. But sometimes I see it as I pull into my driveway and I see it in the booming of a dogwood tree or the flowers. And it doesn't even have to be that. It can be, Matt talked about seeing God in the mundane, in the common. Just like we have some of our greatest moments as a family around the table. And that's the image we've talked about again and again. light. There we go. Red light. Anyway, taking care of the earth and the people that we think about it, it's this huge task and we could choose to be overwhelmed by it or we could choose to see the hope, to see the way our actions, our resources can be used to make a difference. And it isn't in these big, huge, grand gestures. I'm never going to cut a check for $3 million to to save something or another, but on my scale, in my community, the people that I interact with, on my micro, uh, and then my community, these are the things that I can do to make a difference. It's the faithful and the consistent and the common, and that means our giving. I think it starts with our giving. 
And it, does, and it starts with a single decision just to begin in the first place and do the things that we can do on our scale and our, and our level. Alma's going to sing. I'm going to sit down for a sec. Then the guys will come up. We're going to pray. And uh, I think that's it for me for now. Yeah, if I could, um, one, over the last couple of weeks with spring break and things being gone, like the, ten, or the attendance. Well, attendance, for one, has been in down a little bit. People have been out and about. But also that giving um, peace. And so that's one of those things that, that's one of the things that God calls us to do. And as a piece of this community, community is deciding, hey, this, this is one of those things that I'm, I'm going to do. And again, in the consistent and the common. The other thing I like to plug is uh, what Jody talked about earlier. As a community, we're called to take care of the widows and the orphans. Uh, and with Joe Boggs, uh, his passing, is, he's not somebody that I knew tremendously well. But he was one of us in terms of being a part of the community as much as he could before he got sick. And even in his passing, one of the things that he asked was not for flowers or for this or for that, but for the, the contributions of people that wanted to give to give to the children's program in the back. I think that summarizes just a little bit of just who he was. So if there's any way for us to, to rally up, whether you knew him or didn't know him, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us and the common and the majestic God. Thank you for your grace, for the beauty of your creation, for the beauty that we live in, in our community, God. Let us be faithful to you in the same way, God. Let us be generous givers. Let us be generous lovers of the people that we meet in the everyday, God, in our own spheres. Let us be one people and one heart, and let that heart be yours, God. In your name, amen. You know, this is a really important point, is actually if you go back and look at the history of the church, it's been incredibly important in several different ways. The first three centuries of the earth give us some of our, of Christianity, of the church, give us some of our most beautiful and powerful passages in this, particularly a group known as the Eastern Fathers, um, who were in the Greek-speaking part of the church, regularly celebrated the whole vision of God's planet. And that's part of why the Orthodox Christian church um, traces itself back more closely to that, still has not separated humans out from creation, celebrates them very fully together. 
But even after the Western Church uh, developed, we still have lots and lots of examples. The, probably the most famous is St. Francis of Assisi, who connected loving all of God's planet with loving the poor and the oppressed uh, closer together. And, and so much so that the Pope, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, proclaimed St. Francis the patron saint of ecology. It's this very, very powerful witness that God loves all of creation. But even before Francis, you had uh, people like Hildegard of Bingen, who was a German uh, mystic uh, in the medieval period there. And she had these incredible visions of God celebrating all of life and all of creation. And she wrote these visions and mystics uh, down. So all the way through the church here, we have lots and lots and lots of examples of how uh, the creation is, has long been a part, a really integral part of the church's uh, message. It's been lost oftentimes in the last couple centuries, but that's been more about way that how history has developed uh, with the Industrial Revolution, with other things that have separated us out from having close relationship to Earth as part of our nature. But I would argue that creation has always been a part of the church message, sometimes emphasized more, sometimes less. But we have this rich heritage to draw on and weave it back into our own lives today. Well, you asked about this question, and I talk about this a little bit, about we have an ambiguous legacy because there have been parts of the uh, Christian legacy that have not been earth-affirming but have been earth-denying, and I think we need to take that uh, seriously. Sometimes there are good historical reasons for this. Uh, for example, the Protestant uh, Reformation, one of the really powerful things about that is it, it brought renewed attention to the individual Christian's relationship to God and focusing on that. But one of the negative parts about that is it, it's, it sort of the Christian faith to just a relationship between me as an individual and Jesus as Savior. And what gets left out of that is the rest of the, of the planet of the universe. Um, that combined then with our Western tendency, the rise of the Industrial Revolution, really strong tendency towards individualism in the Western tradition, um, has meant that oftentimes we've, we've taken the, the call to dominion as, an, as, a, as a license to exploit the earth and domination. So you have people who pointed out that um, much of the Western tradition has led to exploitation of the earth, and some of the, some of the responsibility for that lies in the Christian tradition, and I think that's, that's true. So for those of us who still see ourselves as Christian today, I think we really are called to both acknowledge and repent for the sins that we've created against God's earth. God loves all the earth, and we haven't always lived as God's responsible stewards in that. We need to acknowledge that and repent of that. But we don't need to apologize for our faith in the biblical story because we have so much in that story that allows us to repent and move on to reclaiming that tradition and acting now as God's faithful stewards. So like so many things, we live in the midst of ambiguity. Um, family should be the one place where we all experience the love of God most deeply. But families are oftentimes the places where we experience hurt most deeply. There, there's ambiguity in that. But just because family is a place where we experience that ambiguity or hurt doesn't mean we give up on family. We acknowledge what we've done wrong, and then we try to enrich and deepen our family experience to live more in the image of God. I would say the same thing with the earth. Acknowledge the places we've gone wrong, repent of that, but then now live fully into God's promise to act as God's faithful steward and reclaim. We, we, one of my favorite uh, the lines of Jesus is, we love others because God has first loved us. That's the message we have with the planet. God loves this planet so richly, we're called to live that, that vision of love out as well. So acknowledge the ambiguity, repent of the sin, move on to fully embrace it. So the hope of today 
was just to say, say, hey, acknowledge that we have a relationship with the earth. To also acknowledge that we've neglected it. Um, and then now look at what are ways that we can restore and fix that. I'm going to invite you to stand one last time with me. The band's going to sing one last song, and that's going to be your dismissal once it's over. We'll see you later.